Myrtle Beach is the beach. 60 miles of bright sand, water, and a wealth of wonderful music playing day and night. You can step into a simple beach bar and discover a surprising level of exciting musical talent. A place to kick back and groove to the enticing soundtrack of the most unexpected vacations around. With nothing but good vibes floating through the warm ocean air. Plan your own music-filled trip to America's Jukebox at visitmyrtlebeach.com. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Since 1983, Eddie Trunk has been the voice for fans of rock, hard rock, and heavy metal. A best-selling author, host of TV's That Metal Show, and seven national radio shows, including Trunk Nation, daily on Sirius XM. Interesting. Eddie offers the world his news-making interviews, passionate analysis, honest commentary, and who knows what else. So welcome to the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Hey folks, it's Eddie Trunk and welcome to another episode of the Eddie Trunk Podcast. It is new every Thursday, podcastone.com, as well as Apple Podcast and Spotify. It is always totally free as well. Thank you for subscribing and listening around the world, wherever and however you do it. It is greatly appreciated. The interviews you hear on this podcast originate on my Sirius XM radio show, Trunk Nation, heard Monday through Friday live on Sirius XM channel 106 volume, nightly replays of that show, 10 to midnight Eastern. And also there is a sixth show, Trunk Nation on Hair Nation, and that's Mondays only, 5 to 8 p.m. Eastern on channel 39. Don't forget my terrestrial syndicated radio show on about 30 markets across the country. Check your local listings, as they say. And uh, be sure to follow on social media, at Eddie Trunk, Twitter, Instagram, fan page on Facebook. EddieTrunk.com is the official online home. And I am on Cameo. If a personalized video is of interest to you, please book at Cameo.com and just search my name and you will see the information come up. Hope everybody had a wonderful new year and wonderful holidays, as good as they can be in this insane COVID era that continues into this new year of 2021. This, of course, being the first podcast of 2021. And I hope everybody has been safe and healthy and doing the best they can with this COVID stuff. I'll tell you, the whole COVID thing hit very close to home for me in the last couple of weeks as my brother got it. Thankfully, I did not, but my brother did. And uh, dealing with it, struggling greatly as did a bunch of other friends of mine who, quite frankly, if I'm being honest, all go out quite a bit and continue to go out some more than others throughout the entire pandemic, and it caught up to them. So be careful out there, folks. It is no joke. Uh, I know firsthand some people who didn't take it all that seriously, and they got zonked big time. 
So it is definitely still serious times. We are in a new year. Vaccines are coming. We are optimistic that we'll get back to music sometime this year. But in the meantime, important to be really, really careful out there as we can hopefully get past this soon and get back to normal, the normal world we want with concerts and shows and all of that good stuff that we are missing. For me, didn't do much. (laughs) Enjoyed not doing much and just basically hung out and spent some time at home and got a little work done and slept and ate probably way too much. Not probably, definitely way too much. And, uh, you know, had a laundry list of things I wanted to do around the house and did none of them. (laughs) As it usually is the case, you know, putting stuff off and still putting it off, kicking the can down the road into 2021. So safe, healthy, as long as you got your health, you're good. And we'll see what happens going forward with this uh, crazy pandemic and the latest phase of it as we get into this new year it's it's crazy when you think about it because we are now like a month away from this being go, going on for for a year six weeks of having dealt with all of this for a year already it is uh it is nuts and obviously harder for for some than others so wishing everybody the best what we have for you this week on the podcast i think you're going to enjoy something a little different Now, normally, you know, and you come to me and you expect and get interviews with all sorts of rock artists. But on this week's podcast, we're going to pull the curtain back a little bit because I love talking to some of the behind the scenes people in the world of rock music and music in general. And the guy I have on for you today absolutely fits that bill. His name is Danny Zalisco. And my history with Danny goes back to probably 1988, so well over 30 years. And I'll tell you how I know him, because we don't have time to talk about it in the interview you're about to hear. But I know him because back in the mid-80s, when I was with Megaforce Records, one of the artists I signed was a band from Phoenix called Icon, who I still love to this day and released a couple albums on Capitol, and then a third album on Megaforce, which I was an executive producer on, and got them their deal. Danny was their manager. And at that time, Danny was a concert promoter in the Phoenix area, in all of Arizona in that area, actually. And Danny and I became fast friends when we met, We shared a love of fast food. (laughs) We shared a love of music. And he just, you know, just a good guy's guy, good dude. So we hit it off pretty quickly and became fast friends and worked together for a brief time on this band. And, And like I said, Danny has been a concert promoter for over 40 years. So he was still at the heart. I mean, he was at the height of maybe being a concert promoter at the time I met him because it was before one or two companies bought up all the concert promoters and controlled the whole industry. So Danny and I have remained in touch over the decades and over the years, and I get to see him once or twice a year because Danny is also part of the Dio Cancer Fund and was close with Ronnie James Dio, 
and I host those events for the Dio Cancer Fund every year and often get to see Danny at them in Los Angeles, and I really look forward to seeing him when we get a chance to hang out a little bit at the bowling event or the bike ride or whatever the case may be. Unfortunately, we didn't get a chance to do that stuff this year because it was all suspended because of the pandemic. Danny has incredibly close, longstanding friendships and relationships with a lot of artists because of his years of promoting their concerts. Very close with Alice Cooper, among many others. And uh, Danny wrote a book recently called All Excess. And it's really a great, fun read. And it, it, it's a, a, a lot of photos, but also a lot of stories about his personal history and his life as a concert promoter and some of the stuff that's gone on and some of the things in dealing with some of these artists. It's not, you know, it doesn't really dish dirt per se, but there's just some great insights, some funny stories. And, you know, I don't think a lot of people realize, and during this pandemic, we've talked about how many people have been greatly impacted because of this pandemic in terms of the behind the scenes people in the music industry, all the people that work, whether they're stagehands or promoters or agents or managers, all decimated by the lack of touring. And I don't think that gets talked about enough. So the timing on this conversation is also important because Danny is back to being a concert promoter. He still is very active in the business, although it's challenging now, not even, you know, even before COVID times, it's very challenging for independent promoters. So we talk a little bit about that. We talk about his stories, just scratching the surface of what's in his book, All Excess. And uh, it's a lot of fun. The book is a fun read. And in the little under an hour of the conversation you're about to hear, again, we just scratch the surface on some of the stuff that is in this very expansive book. It's a big book, a lot of pages, a lot of photos, easy read. Everything's broken down into chapters, easily to digest, and I highly, highly recommend it. So this week on the Eddie Trunk Podcast, we go behind the scenes of the music industry with a legendary concert promoter still in the game, been in the game for over 40 years, telling us some stories and some insights and some knowledge on that world of the music industry. My dear old friend, Danny Zalisco, talking about his book, All Excess. There's a subtitle to it. I don't have the book in front of me. I forget what it is. But uh, you'll hear all about it with Danny coming up on the Eddie Trunk Podcast. The Eddie Trunk Podcast. All right, I told you I was going to get you an interview, and here it is with concert promoter Danny Zalisco. Enjoy this. I think you'll find some great stories and some entertaining stuff in here. Let's let it rip. Danny, how are you, man? Good afternoon, Eddie. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I was uh, I was bummed that we didn't get to get together at least our couple times a year at the DO events, but hopefully we're upon a new year. Hopefully some of that stuff will come back. I sure hope so, too, man. I mean, I, we miss those events. We miss our shows, regular concerts, and just hanging in general, you know, has been severely uh, backed up, you know. So we're looking forward to the new year just like you. 
Hey, so before we talk about your book a little bit, being a guy that has been a concert promoter for decades now, I mean, obviously, we are at the end of what has been an unprecedented year. How have you and your staff and your company endured this year? I imagine not well, but have you been able to hold the fort until we get to hopefully shows starting up again? Yeah, that's you know, that's the hardest thing to do is is because see, we've we had a whole bunch of shows on sale, dozens of shows, and we were cruising into what I would consider my best year of this decade. This, I, I guess, I consider this part of the second decade of the century, and next year is the beginning of the third decade. And this was by far going to be our best year in terms of amount of shows and as well as attendance. So we've, you know, we found that most people, uh, the the large majority, like 80% and more in some cases, have kept their tickets that they already purchased. I mean, apparently they were happy with the seats they already got. As we know, it can be tricky getting the right seats to your the shows that you really want to go to. And um, most people have elected to hold on to them, which... I'm very happy to see because otherwise we would have flushed all that action down the drain, um, you know, from our advertising and promotional to putting the shows on sale and everybody being excited and reaching out and buying tickets. And then suddenly this happens. And, you know, I didn't, I don't necessarily want to keep people's money because I don't get to do nothing with it. It just sits there. Um, but the fact is they want to keep it there because they already got the seats they want and they're happy with them and don't want to go through the process again. And I'm all too happy to keep it that way. Um, it, it, it makes it, you know, it gives it a different set of problems in that you really have to monitor this stuff. But, you know, what's been happening all year is, for instance, in March I had shows. We didn't know what was going on at all then, of course. This came out of nowhere, which it shouldn't have, but it did. And and so we moved shows to May, June, July, and then we got a couple more weeks, a couple more months, and then they got moved to the fall, and now till next year. And we've got shows getting moved into 2022. So um, it, it's tricky, but we have to, We you know, the, the alternative would just be to pull all the shows down and say, we'll be right back, folks, whenever that is. But we would lose all the advertising money and efforts that we put out there, and people would also be forced to have to go rebuy the tickets. So that's what we're doing. That's how we're handling it right now. It doesn't require a, a ton of effort, but you still have to monitor everything, look after it. It seems like gremlins get into computers and do things if you don't watch them close. Well, let me ask you, you know. about the, I mean, there's so much I want to ask you about, but let me ask you about the ticketing thing, because when all this went down, we had a, I had a tremendous amount of people calling me who were upset because they could, they wanted refunds on tickets and they could not get them. Now, for clarity purposes, so my audience realizes this, uh, we all know and have talked about there's two behemoths in the concert promoting industry, and that's Live Nation or AEG. You do not work for either. You were affiliated with Live Nation at one point but you are not any longer. You're what is called an independent promoter at this point. So the shows you're getting and you're doing are at, correct me if I'm wrong, maybe smaller levels than these huge arena stadium things where people laid out 500 a grand for a ticket. So the the likelihood of people being able to float the money if it's a 50 or or $100 ticket and let, let it sit 
is probably a little more hot likely than somebody who's got three, four, five grand tied up and four tickets and maybe lost their gig and need their money back. That's what I was getting a tremendous amount of blowback about from fans because they couldn't recover that money when they needed it. Well, uh, you know, you're right. I'm not affiliated with, with them. I do shows with them once in a while, and, and I know there was a severe, you know, setback I, I felt in the whole, you know, process of, of buying and selling tickets. The bottom line is this. Um, if you're not going to put a show on the date that that person has a ticket for, you owe them the money back if they want it. Now, what I did was somewhere in between. When we announced a new date for somebody, we send an email directly to each ticket holder. It's not just a blanket announcement because we have their information from buying the tickets, which is great, so we can communicate together. And we wrote a letter out to everybody saying, you have 30 days to figure out if you want to keep the ticket or not. If there's any problem with you uh, keeping the ticket until the new date, this is the time to get a refund. We don't want your money if you can't go to the show. So that was the way we handled it. So after 30 days, you and you haven't refunded the ticket, you keep the ticket and you go to the show. It's all yours. Because from my standpoint, the only thing I'm concerned about is while the show remains on sale, I want whoever is interested in going to that show being able to buy the best possible seat. So if you're holding on to seats that you're not going to use or you don't want to use, um, and you're holding on to them, you're, you're not allowing me to give you back your money and resell it because you're still holding on to it. Somewhere there's got to be give, right? And, and to me, that's, that was the fair answer. Nobody, not one person, gave me any hassle about that. There have been a few people that came after the 30 days and and depending on a case by case basis, we we've either handled it or, you know, in some cases said they're your tickets. You go sell them yourself. You've got a year to do it. You bought the ticket, but you know, I mean, as these things change and this new stuff comes up that we got to deal with on on the run, you know, things are you know are likely to change once in a while. And it it sucks for everybody. It's it's a shame. Um, and and as far as you know, the expense of the tickets. I mean, in my world, most of my audience has grown up with me, so they're a little older, maybe a little well, more well-off. Personally, I don't know where people get $500 or $1,000 a ticket to buy a ticket, but well, good me for neither. them that they yeah. I, I don't. It's just like I never understood the $800 bottle of vodka at a bar, you know what I mean? With Yeah. I don't. I just don't understand it, but hey, it is what it is. If people got the money and they want to spend it and the groups want to charge it and, and however that works, that's, that's all individual and up to them. Well, that, and, and look, the, that's one of the things too, your book and Danny's book is called All Excess, which uh, I want to talk about in more detail, but there's you know, sort of two parts of this conversation with my audience. What's going on now and the business of promoting and then some stuff that's actually relevant uh, directly to your book and some of the stories in it. But the, the thing that you do write in the book and you, uh, you accurately printed it all in bold is, um, I think you wrote it something to the effect of like, here's one of the worst kept secrets, or maybe here's something you don't know. The, the cost, the ticket prices are set 
by the artist. I think some of these artists, whether it be, you know, the Eagles or Guns N' Roses that have like a base ticket of like 400 bucks on the floor, uh, a lot of the, there's a lot of deflection as to why the, the thing costs so much. And there's always that initial blowback from fans. And I get the calls on this show. You believe what they're charging. And, uh, you know, there's, a, there's, there's a lot of passing the buck as to why that's that expensive. You print it clearly in your book. The prices are dictated by the artist, correct? They, they have to sign off on it or their manager does. And, and I say that not to point fingers, but just for clarity's sake. I mean, when I'm doing a show here, it doesn't matter who it is. I have an idea in my head what I want that show to look like. And, and in doing so, ticket price-wise, in doing so, I think back to other shows that I've already had as recently as a week ago or a year ago and what I have booked coming up. And based on, you know, what, what other shows are charging, um, you know, we, we make up those ticket prices. I'm going to always suggest tickets prices in my offers um, when I'm making them to the bands before they're confirmed. And, and most of the time they'll say, you know, most of the time they know what other people are charging across the country. So most times I get it right. So I'll set the price. They agree to it. And it's based on a trust and an understanding that, you know, you're, you're not trying to blow the roof off the place. Now, I'm not doing Guns N' Roses anymore. I used to do them all the time. I broke them in this market, and, you know, it was in the 80s. You got a great story about that. Now. You now got a great story guys, about that in the book. <laughs> we should tell, we'll touch you know, on that right? in a second. Yeah. There, there's, but, but what's happened, though, since then is now we're 30 years plus later. And, and I know it seems glamorous because, in a way, it is. I know it seems great that that uh, people are, are touring and, and they're getting back together like the Eagles did or Guns N' Roses did. They do it because they love the music they made together and because they love the money yes. that they can make. And, yes. and there, there's no record company money coming to them anymore. And, and the, the streaming business doesn't pay them anything. The only way they're going to make money for them and their families and their crews is by charging whatever it is they charge. And, and look, if somebody doesn't like the, the, the ticket price somebody charges, don't go. Yes, don't I say it all it. the time. I say it all the time. It changes no, if you don't pay it. <laughs> but you know what? It's, it's like some people just enjoy bitching. Yes, yes. That's what well, let me. It's like, it's like uh, talking about the election and talking about the former president. Enough. I know. I know. I get you're, it. You're, you're, like, I don't want to talk about him anymore. You're a clone of what I've been saying to my audience forever. So it's reinforcing what I've been saying. You don't like it, don't pay it, and 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 it'll change. But but here's the thing. So that's um, the important thing, right there, Eddie. Is that if you go along with it, whether you're right. perturbed about it or not, or you don't care, nobody knows. The fact is, you bought the ticket, which means it's okay with you. Right, and, and then when you hear, but but Danny, then here's what blows my mind. Okay, here's the other thing going on. Um, the secondary, which let's be honest, it's scalping, but that we used to be scalping when we were kids. But the secondary market stuff, or the or the uh, 
the what before the pandemic hit, I felt that the touring market was tremendously oversaturated and so many too many bands over toured in my opinion, and they de- destroyed their draw but then you had you had a situation where and I was getting the calls to this show as well, and it it's really to me mind blowing where where people when a ticket goes on sale, they buy it to a concert and they spend whatever they spend if it's a hundred and fifty bucks two hundred bucks, and then they get to the concert and they sit down and they make small talk with the person sitting next to them. What'd you spend? Uh, I got this yesterday for like 10 bucks on, on Groupon or, <laughs> and, and then, or, you know, it's like my brother went to shows at the local amphitheater here and he went, he go, I would say to him all the time and say, how are you going to so many shows? You're going to lose all, how much money you're spending? He goes, Oh no. He goes, I, I sit next to people that spend like 300 bucks for a ticket. He goes, I spend 20 for the GA and then they upgrade me for five bucks and I sit next to them. Like, so this right. flex ticketing pricing shit is crazy to me. And I know if you buy a ticket, you have to check. You don't read the fine print. You got to opt in now. But that that sort of, uh, you know, whether it's the dumping of tickets and the papering and then it screws the people sitting next to me, it's it's the Wild West, isn't it? Well, you know, kind of. But but keep in mind. Just like anything else, like, you know, it seems like just yesterday, but it's been a couple decades, you know, tickets were 10, 15, 20, 25 bucks. And, and, and it was all, you know, I mean, deflated by comparison to what a lot of the shows are now. But the bottom line is, is like anything else, like buying airplane tickets, buying hotel rooms, getting rental cars. Those are things that are similar to the concert ticket business where there's those add-on costs or it's discretionary what you spend or how much homework did you do? How much do you know about what you're doing when it comes to buying tickets? Like your brother, for example, he sounds like a savvy guy, but that's, there are deals out there. You can go to almost any show for a very cheap ticket price if you're willing to start out on the lawn, for example, and, and, and if they do offer those upgrade opportunities later, you play it. And if it doesn't work out and they sell all the seats, then you stay with your seat on the lawn and you're happy with it. But there's a lot of ways inside and out of the ticket buying business that you learn easily if you do it more than once in a great while. If you're going just once in a great while, many people just, they just want to know where they're going to sit. They don't want to mess with it. And just, I'll take my beating on the price. It doesn't bother me. I want to know where I'm going. So it's, it's, it's different strokes for everybody. You know, I mean, there, there's no planning on it. I agree that the ticket prices are very expensive. But like you just said, I mean, there's groups that are touring a lot, some of them more than they ever did before. And why? They, they're not making any other income from anywhere. Right. Of so, course. So they got to get out there and work, too. So for a promoter these last eight, nine months, and, and, and for the groups and all the crews and all the people that do all this stuff to make sure concerts happen, um, you know, it, it's an incredible punch in the face that we will recover from one day. But in the meantime, you know, uh, we, we have to mess around with, shows that were booked and we got to keep moving them around on the calendar and everybody's jockeying for position. And and the whole time we're doing this, it's a guess. Nobody knows. You know, I mean, I've been, I've been saying for months and months, 
you know, I mean, you can determine if somebody is sick. You can discern, you can tell if somebody, you know, is beyond sick. I mean, but the bottom line is people need to know whether they're they're good or bad, positive or negative. And if they're negative and they and they're in an arena, I mean, there should be a rapid test which they they're now developing or have developed where, you know, maybe the the business can return in some form, maybe not like it was, maybe you need to be masked, maybe not. Who knows? Is it up to the uh is it up to the customer or not? Maybe it's got to be a mandate when you do shows. But I mean, I would love to see shows coming back by second quarter next year. That's that's what I'd like to see happening or for sure by the third because I think all the scientists and all the people have gotten their arms around this and and it's like out of nowhere that something like this comes up and they're not prepared for it and this is what happens. I mean none of us ever thought we were going to be shut down like this all this time. You know. Well, let's hope let's hope that for 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 people in your end of the business and like you said the crews, the bands, there's a lot of people behind the scenes that have just been devastated the venues. Let's hope that indeed is the case sooner than later. I think everybody agrees the smaller scale stuff and then ramping up towards the end of next year, hopefully. Here's a quote from the back of Danny's book All Access. What does it take to be a concert promoter? Uh, the answer, a combination of money, guts, gambling, knowledge, dumb luck, and ignorance. Yes, all of the above and so much more. I want to, Danny, I could talk to you forever about the business, where we're at, where we might be going, but I want to talk to you specifically about your career and some of the stuff in the book because before you know it, the hour is going to be over. So I know you mentioned that Ellison, who lives there in Arizona where you live, actually, uh, Danny, helped you get this book together. He did. Um, Allison lives down the street. Um, yeah, he did. He's put out several books of his own, which are very good and very well done. And uh, he offered um, any tips or guidance that he could give, and, and he helped out a great deal. Um, and uh, I really appreciate that from them. So why This is very strange. It's much different than anything else we've done as far as being on the radio or putting on concerts or whatever. I mean, selling books is another, uh, it's very difficult these days in a way. I mean, like anything else, you've got to get over the hump with people. I mean, there's not many rock books written by promoters. I mean, there's only been a couple that I'm aware of and none of them I liked. And that's part of the reason why I never did one before this one came around uh, because one day the trigger was uh, I was watching Shark Tank and there was a ghostwriter on there from Boston. I called him the next day and uh, we made a deal for him to help write my book with me. And that started in 16. Then over these years, in addition to working on shows and, and you put the thing down, you walk away from it for a minute, suddenly it's a month. And then I, I, I started getting all my pictures together. I've got thousands and thousands of great pictures and posters and memorabilia and things that I wanted to show people as part of telling the story rather than thinking I'm going to write you two or three hundred pages like it matters. You don't know who I am, but you know who all these bands are that I work with and and many of them are my very good friends and I love talking about them. I'm, I'm just used to promoting them all these years and, and pushing them at people. Uh, and and this was a, a unique way to say thanks to them 
and say how much I love them. You know, I mean, it's, it really is like a love story um, because I love these guys. I mean, these are the people, somehow or another, we've chosen to go through life together. And, and here we are. You know, it's 2020, and aside from all the crap that's going on this year, we still have – we can't lose sight of the fact – do we have this great life here going on and, and, and this bump and this hurdle and these terrible things going on will one day subside and maybe there'll be something else waiting around the corner. I sure hope not. But, but in the meantime, I've got, I, I've had such a great time, you know, being the guy here in the Southwest Vegas, Phoenix, Tucson, Albuquerque, where I did most of my shows over the last 40 something years um, it's, it's been an incredible time, you know, to spend being that guy for the people in this area. I, I, I swear I say this sometimes and, and I mean it and I, I don't want it to sound arrogant, but I wish I lived in a town where, with a concert promoter like me, cause I love the music and I, I love most of almost everything that I promote. And, and I end up with these incredible lifelong relationships with people i mean like you and me i am known you since the mid 80s when you yeah. were working for megaforce yep and you and, were managing icon right and yeah. and here we are can you believe it's like three and a half decades later i mean it's ridiculous and yeah. here we are and now you know you're the wikipedia of rock <laughs> <laughs> i well, love that I, i'll tell you i'll tell you man it's uh i know that about you and that's one of the reasons why i mean as soon as i met you back 35 years ago or whatever it was i mean we connected over our love of white castle and our love of uh you know this music and and you know seeing you and working with you back then and that's why we still maintained our friendship because you're a genuine guy and you really love the music and it shows and it shows in the book as well uh, and i mentioned that to my audience the book is a hybrid it's a great book it's an expansive book and as you go through it the photos are interspersed throughout the book with the story and it's an easy read because uh, you know there are so many books out right now and trying to read them all is difficult but you can go through this in sections and you know, there's 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 great stories about the industry about the business about how you started Bill Graham the early years as a kid you find yourself DJing at a Led Zeppelin show I mean all this stuff that I don't have time to get to in great detail right now but I do have some quick hit stuff I want to hit you with about your career that I'm curious about. So for okay. the audience, the first show you ever promoted, and how old were you and who was it and where was it? Um, it turned out to be in Tucson. Uh, it was the Mahavishnu Orchestra with John McLaughlin, the jazz guitarist who uh, was famous for playing with Billy Cobham and Miles Davis and, you know, the earlier... Six, the 60s version uh, when Miles was doing it. Um, and uh, the funny thing was, is I, I bought them for 3500 bucks. and for anybody who knows this band, they know that there was a previous incarnation of Mahavishnu, which was only a five-piece um, with Jerry Goodman on violin and Billy Cobham on drums. But then McLaughlin changed, and he went to a real orchestra, which was 23 pieces. Well, I knew that he had a new band. I knew those guys were out of the band, but I didn't know it was 23 pieces. So I was playing Bill Graham. I'm 19 years old, right? It's 1974. I've just turned 19 when I started doing this. And, and I went, and then the agent calls me up, and he goes, hey, I got this new band from San Francisco. 
with members who just left Santana. They're called Journey. Would you like to have them open up the show? And I go, yes. I love Neil's show, and I love Greg Raleigh. Yes, let's get them. 500 bucks for Journey to open for Ma Vishnu on June 2nd, 1974. Wow. About a month after I book them, I get the contract. I send it back. A guy called, um, I think it was Nat, Elliot Sears, who worked for Nat Weiss there in New York. Elliot calls me up and he goes, is this your first show? I go, why does it show? He goes, did you really book Journey to open for us without talking to us about it? That's one of the things that was a tip-off that this must be your first show because everybody, you got to talk with people about this kind of stuff. You can't just go on your own, which is what I did. Mm. He goes, you got to cancel them. I go, why? He goes, we're playing three and a half hours. We have 23 people on stage, and we're not moving a piece for anybody. That's just the way it is. It's our show, not theirs. We're not trying to be jerks, but you did. You jumped the gun. You shouldn't have done that. Learned uh, Lesson learned. I had to call back Herbie Herbert, who managed them for a great deal of their career, and say I had to fire him off the show. And fortunately for us, we became friends, and, and we did shows together later. But that was not a great way to start. Um, so, you know, you make mistakes. This is not an easy Business, like any other business, there's a lot of intricacies. The only way you find out is by doing stuff like that, you know, and sadly, but that's what happened. Did you, did you make money on your first ever show you promoted? Was that show profitable as a promoter? Oh, no, hell no. I, that was 74. I didn't make, I didn't make any money on the first few shows I did, and, and then I lost. I, I only had 11 grand to begin with, which wasn't enough even then. And, but I did manage to get a few shows done. I got Herbie Hancock, which was fantastic, and Brian Auger, the great keyboard player, and I did Arlo Guthrie, who was fantastic. But none of these shows made money, so I ran out of money, and I ended up, um, I ended up selling waterbeds for a while. <laughs> and and uh, it, it took me until the end of '76 to get hired by a nightclub here in town called Dooley's, which is pretty famous. Um, we had a lot of fantastic shows there from 77 on and, um, and, and within a year of starting, you know, booking the, the shows at that club for 80 bucks a week, by the way, <laughs> um, I, I got my chops and, and within a year after that, I was on my own and I had my company evening star that was doing shows and one show after another, one foot follows the other and the next thing you know, I mean, all the great metal stuff started at the end of the 70s in the early 80s. And suddenly I'm doing Scorpions and Priest and Motley. Motley came out. Motley's first show outside of Los Angeles was opening for Kiss at the Aladdin Theater, April Fool's Day, 1982, a date that lives in infamy in my mind. It was a great night. I remember sitting in the closet with Motley, Doc and Doug Thaler, and and. And, and here's, here's Nikki going, do you really think we got a shot at this? Swear to God. Mm-hmm. And, and that uh, was a tour. That was a debacle. I don't know how you did on that date, but that was the Creatures of the Night tour with Kiss for Kiss, which was a fantastic record, but uh, the wheels were coming off. They, that tour was notorious for them doing like 1,200 people in 15,000-seat arenas. I don't know if you did business on your date, but that was a notoriously rough tour for Kiss. That was just before they took uh, I, the makeup I off. Did, 
I did okay on that show, as I recall, um, in, 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 in the Aladdin. I don't remember it being bad at all. And Gene Simmons was um, seeing Diana Ross at the time, and uh, she was across the street at Caesars, and we went over there together uh, to see her show, which was, believe me, what a, what a sight it was to see Gene in that giant overcoat of his that he throws over his shoulders, you know, instead of putting his arms in it like normal guys like me. And, and, and it was quite a spectacle, and we, we had a great time. Tell fun. me, tell, tell the audience, um, give me the show in your career of over 40 years that was the most successful and profitable, and which one did you take the biggest beating on? Give me the yin and the yang. What was the best one of your career so far, and what was the biggest stiff? Well, you know, uh, the, the greatest, I, I guess, the most, I think, we, we biggest show we had was probably Stone's MGM, uh, early 2000s. Um, the other one in the 90s, we did five years in a row with the Grateful Dead at uh, Sam Boyd Silver Bowl in, um, in Las Vegas. And each year we, we picked a, a, a greater or I shouldn't say greater, but a, a great uh, opening act, Santana, Steve Miller, uh, Sting, uh, Traffic, and Dave Matthews were the opening bands for those five years, and we did 40-something thousand people a day for three days each, and, and those, those were great. Um, you know, it, probably, you know, as far as a beating goes, uh, we did shows at the Millennium, up in Vegas, uh, I had Bette Midler on New Year's, and and uh, I didn't realize when it was booked that Barbara Streisand was playing at the MGM Grand, and and then she added a second night because they were filming it, and they couldn't sell the second night, so they papered the shit out of it, and you know what would you rather do, see Barbara for free, or or pay five hundred bucks to see Bette, you know, and and uh, it, it it didn't work out. It didn't work out well. The other thing that really it wasn't the ticket prices were extraordinarily high for the time, but in addition to that, remember we had Y2K, we had terrorist threats, the computers weren't going to turn the right way at midnight, all that stuff that was going on. But, and on top of that, in Vegas, um, the the hotels chose to do four and five night minimums with their prices tripled or quadrupled, and everybody said, "Screw it, we'll stay home." We'll have a great party, and we won't worry about Y2K and the the rest of it. So, which should have been the greatest week of the world, you know, when, you know, according to old school type things, where New Year's is such a big deal, and 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 changing the century, a new century, that's a big deal. It didn't turn out to be the big deal that we thought. Um, and, and as it turns out, for real, and this isn't just malarkey here that I'm throwing around, I feel like every time we do a show, it's New Year's Eve. You know, it, it, it's a celebration of fun, of getting out and not working and being with your friends or whoever, or nobody, you know, for that matter. But then you make friends when you get there. Concerts are great. And, and uh, you know, that's that's why we do them. That's why we go to them. Danny, before I forget, too, for people listening and they want to buy the book, where do they go? Go put- to uh, DZPLive.com. Danny Zalesco presents Live.com. That's our concert website and that's where you can also pick up the book and we'll ship it out dzp included in the price 
dzplive.com. That's where you go to buy this. Uh, his book is called All Excess. It has a fantastic photo of Danny on the cover, which when he <laughs> sent it to me, he said, I'm going to change that photo. And I said, don't you dare. That is a Danny I know and love, and it is brilliant. It is a, a photo of you in a, a t- I don't know, in a tank top with a big box of money gripping it, and it reminds me of a story. There, I I did hosted a show. Uh, saw God knows where it was in the country, but Slaughter was on the bill, and uh, Dana Strom, who's a dear friend, wanted to be paid in cash, and the promoter paid him in singles. And we went, he came back to the dressing room and he drops a bag on the ca- on the thing. He goes, look at that. I just got paid. I go, holy shit. What kind of guarantee you guys get in these days? He goes, look at it. And it was all singles. So we all took it all out. And we all laid in front of it without people really looking that they were all singles. It looked like we had this crazy amount of money. But what, real quick, because I want to know about the rider. What is the origins of the photo on the cover? Um. That was taken in April of 88, and, and I was back and forth with the picture. Somebody said I looked like a Colombian drug dealer. And, <laughs> and I, I said, well, that's not a bad way to look as a promoter uh, for a promoter book. Um, so, uh, But I went ahead with it. It's a, it's a great shot. It, it, there's 40 grand in cash, and, and that's a cassette box, right? Oh, and, okay. And... and what we did was we had the Pink Floyd Momentary Lapse of Reason tours, the first Floyd show without Roger. He called it Pseudo Floyd. And, and uh, my, my security chief, John Reese, who you probably know. I know John, um, yeah. Yeah, so John suggested that I give him ten grand in cash about a week before the show. And he went around and he bought all the parking lots around Phoenix Municipal Stadium because the stadium was only equipped to have 8,000 people. You know, the minor league ballparks are much smaller. They don't have lawns or they don't have bleachers at the time. So there's only an 8,000 capacity for the stadium, but then you put 10,000 chairs on the field, and then you bring in some bleachers, some you know rented portable bleachers, and I got 22,000 capacity. So now we had triple the capacity the place was used to having, and we had to overcome that problem of where to park everybody rather than, you know, doing busing and all that kind of stuff, which I don't like doing. So that's how it happened, and, and I'm, I made more on the parking than I did on the show. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, let me, so let me get this from you. I teased it before the break. that You know, there's all the old stories with rock, bands, yeah. crazy stuff on the riders, Van Halen famously, no brown M&Ms and all that. Give, give me one, one or two that that are among the. You looked at the contract. You're like, what? Well, you know, I mean, the thing with those, that that rider thing, and I think probably most people have heard the story. There were their manager was trying to find out if the promoters were reading the rider, and right. if Brown M M&M and M showed up, they thought they were going to be in trouble that day because he probably wasn't going to look at anything else uh, on their, you know, on their request list. Keeping in mind too, just for the record. When a popular band like a Van Halen or Prince, for example, I'll tell you a great Prince story, they want certain things, and, and you're their host. You're not only their promoter, you're their host. You're their buddy. You're going to take care of them with what they need, no matter how weird it is, um, because they're going to end up paying for 80 or 90% of it if the show goes sales-wise as planned. And in most cases, 
it goes that way. Like, for instance, one night I had the band Molly Hatch at, at the Coliseum, and it was a total stiff. And, and they had $2,500. This is a long time ago. $2,500 for catering. And, and I see four of the five band members come walking in right past the catering room when I begged them to reduce their catering rider, and they come walking in with Wendy's from across the, across the street. I almost killed them. You know, I mean, it's like, what am I doing? The stars aren't eating the food. This is for the, the crew. I'll get them McDonald's. I'm dying here. Come on. Um, Prince. Prince wanted an entire room. I forget how many dozens. An entire room of these special carnations from Denmark. In a whole room full of them. It's $10,000. But it wow. was his money. It was a cost of the show. Um, so I would have made 10% or 15% of that, which I wouldn't have minded making. But if this is what keeps the kid happy, give him his damn flowers. Now, wait, the in a case that like that... Danny, hold on. In a case like that, you have to source these rare flowers and pay for them out of your end, or you just have to deliver them and he pays for them? I have to deliver them. Well, it's part of the show cost, just like a stagehand or an advertisement or a security guard. Flowers. <laughs> so you you're know? paying for it. I'm, I'm paying for it. And then, you know, my show still has to break even and make money. Um, and, and that's part of the cost. So that's, that's part of what you get to do. Um, the best one, and it wasn't serious, but it was the funniest thing. And I literally fell off my chair and I, I wish I could, it was, it was a band that I don't even know if they're together anymore. It was just a couple of years ago. Um, they wanted a petting zoo <laughs> <laughs> and, and they described the type of animals they wanted. It was, I'm going to find it for you and I'll send it to you. It's so great. Um, Do you you don't remember the band? Can you say the band? I can't remember the name of the group. It it was somebody that I, you know, it's like the day of the show, they got us their contract for me to sign and send back, you know, because they just wanted to make sure that they had everything official and everything. They were already there for the show. So I signed it and I read this thing and I I congratulated them on on probably the funniest thing I've ever read in in a writer. Like, you know, a lot of times they'll ask you to get them condoms and cigarettes. As long, if, if, if I'm not going to partake in either of those things, I'm not buying those for you. You get your own rubbers and you get your own smokes. <laughs> right, right. You, know? you got a story. You got a story in the book. There's a story in the book about a cheese tray with Queen. And oh, then yeah. there's also a story in the book about Axl Rose uh, needing a plastic surgeon to have a zit popped on his head because the concert you were going to be using screens and up close the zit would be seen even though he wears a bandana. So you sent a a uh, a uh, breast oh, augmentation doctor. doctor to remove the zit, and that's what it took for him to come to the venue and do the show. Exactly. Not only that, I had to have the doctor with his medical coat on standing on the tarmac of the private terminal, so he knew that I actually had the doctor there. He was so upset about the zit, I never saw it, you know, because by the time I saw him, it was eliminated. But he knew it was there, and it was just one of those things where he didn't feel comfortable performing. What if, the, what if his bandana came off and everybody saw a cyclops in the middle of his forehead? So what, what about a little dab of makeup, though? You know, when I used to well, do TV, whenever I've done TV, if I've had that, they just put a spot of makeup and nobody knows nothing. 
look at Eddie. You know these guys. I mean, they're I know, I'm not Axel. They're 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 geniuses. They're great performers. They're they're very gifted. But sometimes, with all those gifts they get, a little bit of common sense goes away sometimes. But who are we to judge? He sang "Sweet Child of Mine." He gets his doctor. God, <laughs> you know. He didn't care what. Give it could have him. been a veteran. You could have sent a veterinarian as long as it was a guy in a lab coat. The credentials weren't oh. checked. Just as long as the thing was taken off, that's all he cared about. That would have been funny if you sent like a vet or something there to do it. Well, oh, what it would have been what it would have been funnier. And I told Slash this later. I don't know if he'd remember. And I said I was going to ask the doctor to sew a boob on his forehead. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, hey, man! I I am up against the end of the show. This hour blew by. We're half. We're going to have to do it again at some point. Hopefully, maybe even Anytime in person want, when things open up. There's just too many stories, and uh, I congratulate you on an amazing career and uh, one of the good guys in this business. And I, I truly hope when things open up again, things are prosperous and successful for you again in the promoting business, and I can't wait to see you again. The book is called All Excess Occupation, Concert Promoter, Danny Zalisco, who has been my guest. And again, it's D, uh, DZPLive.com, did you say? DZPLive.com. You can, you can get as many as you want there. This is the perfect gift for people right now, and I say this with bias, of course, but I'm saying it because we don't have concerts to go to. This book will take you to so many shows that you weren't at, you'll have fun with it. it it's really a good book. I, I, I really, uh, I, I say that from the bottom of my heart. It took a lot of years to create, and uh, and, I, and I'm glad you and me are, have been around for all these years to you know see all this stuff. I mean, it's great, isn't w- it? It is, and I would be remiss if I didn't say congratulations on your induction into the White Castle Hall of Fame. Tommy Shaw, who I know you were instrumental along with the late John Prine in having inducted this year. I had Tommy on this show on the day of the induction. And uh, uh, he just raved about what a, a tremendous honor it is. And I understand that might be the greatest honor of all, maybe the greatest accomplishment in all the decades I've known you, Danny, is that you have been inducted into the White Castle Hall of Fame. I, I got to run. They're going to clip me if I don't end on time. But thank you, man. Take care. I'll talk to you soon. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Great visiting with my friend Danny. Hope you uh, you liked that and learned some things and got some insights. Check out his book. Really entertaining. I think you will enjoy it. It is out and available now. Thanks to Katie Irizarry, as always, the producer of the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Thank you for listening. Be sure to check me out on Sirius XM Radio every day. Talk and rock with you on volume, channel 106. Live weekdays, 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time, nightly replays, 10 to midnight Eastern, and listen anytime you want on the Sirius XM app. Have yourselves a great week, everybody. Happy New Year, and follow on social media at Eddie Trunk, and I'll see you next Thursday for another all-new episode right here, podcastone.com, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts.
Myrtle Beach is the beach. 60 miles of bright sand, water, and a wealth of wonderful music playing day and night. You can step into a simple beach bar and discover a surprising level of exciting musical talent. A place to kick back and groove to the enticing soundtrack of the most unexpected vacations around. With nothing but good vibes floating through the warm ocean air. Plan your own music field trip to America's Jukebox at visitmyrtlebeach.com.